0: Three announcements. Uh, First of all, that uh, our August Men's Prayer Breakfast is this coming Saturday, which is day after tomorrow morning at 7.30 in the morning. And we have a great breakfast, so invite those who haven't been especially. We have a good time. It's a good opportunity to get into the Word and talk about important current events. And then secondly... Uh, Sunday is the deadline for those who want to register for a course this fall for Chafer Seminary, uh, and including my course on on church history. So you can sign up. Uh, West Houston Bible Church members can take two courses each semester for free after paying a $20 application fee and $30 registration fee. So that's a pretty good deal. And that is, um, and then there are a number of other courses. You can go online and see all of the courses that are offered Offered this particular fall. And in doing that, we can continue our focus on the Word and growing. And today, in what is going on in the world today, there is nothing more important for every believer than getting into the Word. On the way here tonight, I was listening to an interview with a member of uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney's staff, and he was talking about the situation in Afghanistan. And I had been saying, and I read several other reports that didn't have that many, i have been saying there were 20,000. but He said there are over 65,000 Americans that have been abandoned by us. That's the reality of it. This useless administration, incompetent to the max, has brought such embarrassment, and most people in this country haven't a clue how horrendous the impact of this. We, the president of the United States, was reprimanded by both houses of parliament for their irresponsibi- for his irresponsibility in handling uh, the Afghanistan situation today. That has never happened before. The shame that has been brought upon this nation is but the tip of the iceberg because it is brought upon this nation because at the core of this nation the people have abandoned God, the people have rejected the scriptures, they have not only set the, ignored God but they have set themselves up against God and against truth they have so divorced themselves from reality by the constant suppression of truth in unrighteousness that they have created a national psychosis that has brought on a national hysteria where as we'll look at as since we're in Isaiah tonight we'll look at Isaiah 5 where the same thing happened in Israel in the past where the leadership and the people were saying that what was right was evil and what was evil was right and who of us could ever imagine the depths of perversity and depravity that this nation has succumbed to in the last two or three years actually it's it's been going on on for much longer and it's where now that which is perverse and abnormal is considered normal. And what is going on on university campuses and what is being taught in public schools is just, it, it's its tragic, it's an embarrassment, and that there are not words foul enough or egregious enough to, to describe the impact this will have for decades it will take decades it took decades to get here and it will take decades to turn around and the only hope is the word of God now that hope will be expressed by people who do the right thing when they go to vote and a lot of people apparently have not been doing the right thing and they have been passively or actively voting for evil and there has to be a change in that and people have to wake up to a lot of realities and it is this is the result of the decisions that Americans have made, uh, either by not voting or by voting for the wrong people. And we have to be engaged. This is a nation that is built upon the citizenship responsibility, and that means informed and knowledgeable based upon the values of God's Word. And to not do that is the nadir of irresponsibility. And so there has to be a change. But God is the one who's in control, and we can always take comfort in that, that no matter what is happening, this is God's plan. God is working things out, and that we should not fear, we should not be anxious, we should not um, run and hide because the sky is falling, Because of all people, we have not been given a spirit of fear or a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of courage and strength because of our relationship with the Lord. So when everything seems to be collapsing around us, we have what, what God has given us. And so we can relax and trust him and go about our mission. And that begins with being in Bible class, studying the Word every single day, and getting and getting the word into our soul because we have two options. This is either A, going to wake up Americans, and there's going to be a slow but gradual turn in the correct direction, or it will be such that it has no impact, in which case things will continue to deteriorate more rapidly than we can possibly imagine And we will go through a a national collapse. And the only way we're going to survive that is to have the Word of God in our soul. And we have to understand all of the spiritual skills that God has given us, and we have to learn to use them and practice them every single day because we don't know what's coming. And we have to train ourselves spiritually to handle the worst because that's more of a real possibility now than we've ever thought in our entire lives. So before we begin, I want to remind us of a couple of good promises from the Psalms, which say that we are to cast our burden on the Lord, for he shall sustain us. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. That doesn't mean the righteous won't go through difficult times. It means their faith will not be shaken because of God's failure. He will fulfill His promises to us. Scripture says, Delight yourself also in the Lord. Commit your way unto Him, uh, and He will bring it to pass. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. I will not, <clears throat> in God I have put my trust. I will not fear what man can do to me. Um, uh, I will not fear what can man do to me. i just botched that up. So we need to focus on those promises that if we put our trust in God, we have no basis for fear or anxiety because whatever is going on in the human realm it can be handled easily by God. And so let's take a few moments to reorient our thinking, to confess sin if necessary, to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we know that as we look out on the circumstances in the world today and we look at them through the eyes of history and the eyes of your word, that we understand how serious things are and what is going on. And, Father, we pray that you would cause people in America who are Uh, positive. Maybe they've just been too busy. They've been casually uh, involved in Bible study or going to church. May they wake up and realize the seriousness of our situation. And Father, we pray that we can be enlightened by your word because we know that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That means it illuminates what is in front of us. It illuminates the direction that we're going. And Father, we pray that you would enable us to wisely make decisions and priorities in terms of preparing ourselves for whatever may come. Father, we know that if it is your will, that things can be turned around, but there needs to be a change in the hearts of Americans before that happens. And that is what we see throughout our studies in Judges and other passages of Scripture, That if there is not a turning to you, then the discipline will continue and the consequences of our past decisions will mount. And, Father, we pray because we know that the only way we will be able to handle what comes is to relax and trust in your word, knowing that you have a plan and a purpose and you are our strong tower, our shield, our defense. You are the rock that gives us stability, and we pray that this might be very real to us at this time, and and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles, and what we're going to do is continue our study of the day of the Lord, and tonight we're going to look at passages in Isaiah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so, some of you may say, well, how in the world are we going to do that? Well, it's mostly, with a couple of exceptions, very short passages. And so it's pretty clear. And we're just looking at these passages for a few important details. We're not doing a complete exegesis and exposition of each each one of these particular passages. We are in a study of Second Peter. We are in the third chapter in the main part of that chapter where God is refuting the mockery of those who mock and these are the false teachers who are denying the literal second coming. So important for interpreting this passage because the focus is on the fact that they are denying the second coming of Christ. And we're in a passage that is... Uh, difficult for a lot of people to understand. It has uh, the, uh, there's a way in which this passage has been taught for most of us, which is probably the predominant way in which it has been understood among uh, Bible scholars and dispensationalists. That this refers to something that occurs at the end of the millennium, after the great white throne judgment. However, there is a growing number of people who disagree with that view because of a number of important exegetical and hermeneutical factors, that this comes at the end of the tribulation. It is not a term that the words here are not terms that talk about a total annihilation of the planet, But of just uh, the need to completely cleanse and renovate the planet for the presence of God and the kingdom on this earth. And so that this speaks of the uh, judgments that occur in the tribulation, concluding with the day of the Lord, which we're seeing is primarily used of the end times of the tribulation, and that the uh, then then it following this is the is the kingdom, but we'll get there right now I'm primarily just going to lay out what the what the issues are, and then when we get into the guts of the passage, I'll be talking about how one view understands it versus the other view, so we can work our way uh, through it. So we started off looking at the question uh, what does the Bible teach about the day of the Lord? And the first question is just, what is the day of the Lord? For, backing up, 2 Peter 3.10 begins, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and how the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, what's interesting, just looking at that, in light of what I just said, the phrase... Day of the Lord and thief in the night are both used to refer to that which happens at the end of the tribulation in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Furthermore, that imagery is of the thief in the night is also used in uh, Matthew chapter 24 when the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about his coming at the end of the what we call the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. So what is the day of the Lord? Just to review a little bit, there are several views that dispensationalists hold. One is Schofield's view that it begins with the events just prior to the second coming, but then goes all the way through the millennial kingdom to the great white throne. That would include the judgments at the end of the tribulation, and then all of the blessings in that thousand-year period. The second view, which is a dominant view, view I was taught at Dallas Seminary, just about everybody who went to Dallas Seminary from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s was taught this view. And it was the view of Harry Ironside and Lewis Barry Chafer, Walvard Ryrie, Pentecost, Pastor Thiem, uh, Renal Showers, Ray Bowman. And this is the view that it begins after the rapture, And then extends through the judgments at the end of the tribulation, through the millennial kingdom, and all the way. And um, earlier works that Tommy published, uh, he says the day of the Lord is a thousand and seven years long. The third view is that the second—it's the second coming, or just and or the end of the millennium—but excludes most of the tribulation and the millennium. A man who is um, on the faculty, I think he is like the vice president of Master Seminary, named um, Richard Mayhew, and I have run across versions of his position in a number of different, at least four different publications. Uh, He apparently wrote his either his master's thesis or his doctoral dissertation on the Day of the Lord, and uh, a number of people uh, believe that he's probably got it pretty well, and that's why I include both Randy Price and Tommy here because Tommy Tommy and Randy both say, "Well, I think he's got the best explanation." And what he argues is that there's two days of the Lord, one at the end of the tribulation and the other at the end of the millennial kingdom, but it doesn't include all of the millennial kingdom. And then there's the view that it's the tribulation only, all of the tribulation, not just the end, and that's Arnold Fruchtenbaum's view. And then there is the view that it's the rapture, just the rapture or the second uh, coming, and that's... Uh, Lou Barbieri's view. So, how do we determine the meaning of the Day of the Lord? This is this is when Bible study gets exciting and fun, and sometimes we get confused. And so, just to remind you, the phrase "the Day of the Lord" occurs in 19 Old Testament verses in reference to a special time of judgment. That judgment may have been a historic judgment at the time it was fu- that it was announced. It was future. But then, for us, it occurred way in the past, and so it's a historic or past judgment. But there's also passages that talk about uh, what happens in the latter days, and that would be the latter days of Israel. So that's the last seven years of the time period for Israel, according to Daniel uh, chapter 9, 24 to 27. So, And then there's other terms that have to be understood, that day, the day, the great day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord, all of those terms. Uh, So second, the day of the Lord refers to God's special interventions into the course of world events to judge his enemies and accomplish his purpose for history and thereby demonstrate that he is the one and only God. So we're going to look at some key passages. I put this chart up last week. Several people have taken nice little screenshots or pictures of this chart so they can uh, keep it handy. But this is just to show you the chronology that we're looking at here. We're looking at the way it's used from the first time it was used in Obadiah here early on. He's in the southern kingdom. And then Joel. And then Amos. Amos. And then Isaiah. Isaiah has a longer ministry than Amos, and so they're, they're both in this time period. And then uh, we'll look at Isaiah tonight, and then Zephaniah, uh, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Malachi. So we've looked at Obadiah, and what we learned was that the judgment in verses 1 to 14 is a now historic, fulfilled judgment on Edom, which... Uh, and in verses fifteen to twenty one the shift is to a future day of the Lord that it will bring a destruction on the godless nations, including Edom and after the day of the Lord uh, the, the god 's kingdom is established on the earth Obadiah fifteen for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. And then in verse uh, 18, no survivor will remain of the house of Esau. And verse 19, um, excuse me, verse uh, 21, we're told then, Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So that's fairly obvious. Joel speaks of a judgment that comes that is a historic judgment upon Israel and it is a judgment of locusts. But then, after the second chapter, that is developed as a an, an allegory, or an, excuse me, an analogy to the future judgment which will involve armies. The day of the Lord is used five times in Joel. In Joel one fifteen, it's this judgment God brought on them through the locusts. And then in 2... Uh, 1 through 31, it develops in terms of the future or the eschatological day of the Lord, and then in 3.14, it's a unique, one-of-a-kind judgment that Joel talks about. The land is destroyed by fire and reduced to a wilderness. In verse 10, there are earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, stars lose their brightness... In verse 11, the Lord is before his army and his camp is very great. And this is then called the day of the Lord. So we looked at this chart and saw that you have a lot of similarities between the Joel descriptions on the left and Isaiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, all these passages on the right talking about it as a day of darkness. It's a day of darkness and not light, Amos says. Not not light. Light would be blessing. Darkness is judgment. It's a day of clouds, a day of thick darkness, a day of cosmic disturbances. All of these things are very negative. There's no blessing. There's no sense of the kingdom there. We looked at... Um, I don't know why chapter 9 is there. Amos 5, 18 and 20, where Amos says it will be darkness and not light. and the day of the Lord is darkness and not light, but 520. So there's no hope there. There's no sense there that it would include the millennial kingdom. And Isaiah 2, so let's turn there. That's where we find ourselves tonight. Isaiah chapter 2. And what I want to do is just go over a couple of things here as we look at Isaiah chapter 2. This is one of the great chapters in the Bible. And the whole situation that we see in um, Isaiah chapter 2 is that God is announcing what will take place. He's telling Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is telling uh, Israel that there is going to be uh, judgment on Israel. That would be a historic judgment but that there will be a future time when there will be the glorious kingdom. That's what's described in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days. So that's the latter days, rather. That's the latter days of Israel, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Now, I want you just... I'm going to point out a couple little things as we go along here. Notice that the geography the topography has radically changed for this to happen. For those of you, most, many of you have been to Israel. This is not what we see in Israel today. This is, there's going to be an uplift that takes place. First of all, as we, As we'll see in the Zechariah passage, there's going to be a, the the Mount of Olives is going to split north and south with a new valley and river running through there. And then the center of, of Jerusalem is going to be elevated and much of the mountainous area is going to turn into plains and the mountain of the Lord, this is the highest part now, this is going to be large enough to hold the millennial temple, which is quite large. It's a mile square. Now, there's no place there to put uh, a temple that large right now. So this is going to be elevated. And it's important to understand because when we get into the Second Peter 3 passage, that's what that's talking about is there's going to be massive top- topographical changes in Israel as a result of all of this. And so that's what these other passages, will see little hints of this in in different passages. So the uh, mountain of the Lord where the temple will will be raised, and many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he'll teach us his way. So the whole world's going to come to Israel to worship God. And it will be a time of Unprecedented world peace described in in uh, verse four as they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. It is that verse that is uh, chiseled out of the stone at the entry to the United Nations in New York. They have taken upon themselves the idea that they are going to accomplish that, and this is what the Messiah will accomplish. So if you think the UN is a neutral organization, it has claimed a religious role for itself to bring in world peace, instead of God, which means that it is a a blasphemous organization in terms of its very origin, and it set itself against God in every way that we can imagine, and this country should not be given a dime to the United Nations. And neither should any other nation, but we're living in the devil's world, so that's going to happen. Um, The verse... Five says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord, for you have forsaken, this was what happened in the past, they've forsaken uh, uh, God, they're saying, um, for you, God, you have forsaken your people the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways, they have assimilated uh, eastern, all the eastern religions, that's not talking about how we would talk about the east in terms of Buddhism and Hinduism this is talking about the, the religions of all the fertility religions of the middle east and um and list these various uh, countries following that, and then we see that uh, there's going to be this uh this judgment that comes uh, because of what they have said there and verse uh, eight says their their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. And then verse 10, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord. Now, this sounds a lot like what is happening in the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. Hide from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Now that phrase, in that day, doesn't have any meaning yet. Because it's just talking about at that time. It is not a technical term for the day of the Lord. But the next verse introduces that. It says, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And this tells us this is going to be a judgment that is against the arrogance of all those in the world uh, and against all of the various nations. Upon the cedars of Lebanon, that represents Lebanon for what they were known for and the oaks of Bashan that's up on the... Golan Heights—that's the area of of Bashan—and so this goes on to talk about the terror of the Lord and the glory of His Majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily, and that that description comes in um, several places throughout Isaiah. And so what we see here is this is a day of the Lord where God is going to humble all of the proud. He is going to display his majesty. And um, as Isaiah portrays the day of the Lord here, it is uh, before the establishment of the kingdom on earth. And it is a picture of judgment. And 2.19, there's the description that they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And verse 20, in that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship. Uh, to the moles and bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Now, it is typical, and I did this when I went through Revelation, and uh, several things have occurred to me that I have to go go look at, but it is a description that is very similar to that of Revelation 6.14, where we read it with the, as part of the sixth, or the fifth seal judgment, sixth seal judgment, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So there's this massive earthquake. But this isn't the only earthquake that occurs in the judgments of of Revelation. In Revelation 6.15, it goes on to say, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Sounds very similar to what is said in Isaiah 2. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? And so it seems to me from this, these descriptions that this is part of the day of the Lord, which would put the day of the Lord starting at the, near the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And I think that, uh, that fits uh, the scenario uh, pretty well. The, uh, what we see here is some have said, well, how do the kings of the earth and the commanders know to hide from the wrath of the Lamb, that this is God's wrath? Well, first of all, you have by this time, this has been going on. The first seal judgments, in my view, takes place in about the first half or the first quarter of the seven years of the tribulation, the first half of the first half. And you have the two witnesses who are on the earth because they're going to be on the earth for three and a half years and they are going to be executed about the time of the abomination of desolation. So they are announcing things. And even though we're not told about the 144,000 until chapter chapter 7, the 144,000 have already been sealed and their ministry has started because the way that that John writes, he can't write everything at the same time, so he describes what's happening on the earth in chapter 6 and then he shifts the scene it's still the same time period but he's showing what's happening in the in the heavens and then in chapter 8 he comes back to the earth so you think of it as like you're watching a TV show and so there's a scene here and then there's a scene there and you're watching some sort of detective show and you have a scene where you're looking at what the detectives are trying to figure out And then then it shifts to the next scene, which is what the murderer is doing to cover his tracks, but that doesn't actually follow what the detectives are doing. They're happening at the same time, but they can't show it any other way. So that's what we see in Revelation. That's why you have to pay attention. Where is this happening? And go back and forth. So that would indicate that the day of the Lord, and there's other indications the day of the Lord will begin... um, begin somewhat early. Now, the next thing I want to look at is in Isaiah chapter 5, just because we're here. And Isaiah, uh, really Isaiah 1 through 5, for those of you who get confused about Isaiah when you read it as you go through year after year, remember that when the way the Hebrews write is not in chronological order, it's thematic. And so in the first five chapters, we are told and introduced to Isaiah's primary message, which is to announce judgment will come on Israel, but God in his grace will fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and eventually Israel will have its kingdom, and God will reign on the earth. So what is happening in Isaiah 1 through 5 is laying out uh, what they are doing wrong and why it is necessary for God to bring this judgment, both the historic day of the Lord, which would describe the coming of the Babylonians in 586, as well as uh, how it foreshadows what will come at the end. So chapters 1 through 5 precede chapter 6, which is when Isaiah is called to ministry. That's when he begins his prophetic ministry. But it comes later because uh, God is going to start with his primary message. Now, all of you have watched television shows where the main characters are involved in some horrendous situation, and it looks like they're about to lose their life and lose the battle against the bad guy or whatever else can happen, and suddenly it stops and says, three weeks ago, and you go back in time to what happened three weeks before to learn how they got into that predicament. So that's the kind of thing that's going on in Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah 6 is going to take us back to, to answer the question, well, who is this Isaiah? Who is this that's making this announcement against Israel and what's really going on here? But at the end of this opening prologue, in Isaiah chapter 5, God is going to lay out what is going to happen to Israel. And in this chapter, there are a series of seven different uh, judgments that are announced against Israel, and they each begin with the word woe. In Hebrew, it's oy. So if you ever, you know, when you say oy, that's woe. It's the announcement of a judgment. And so it begins... Uh, to identify what is going to happen. Woe to those who join house to house, they add field to field, and there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. And uh, in my hearing, that is Isaiah speaking, the Lord of hosts said, Truly many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant, for ten acres of vineyard have yielded one bath. That is very little. This is indicating judgment. Uh, The second woe, woe to those who rise early to get drink and to live on the basis of their pleasure. And uh, this is why my people have gone into captivity, because they have no knowledge, no knowledge of truth, no knowledge of scripture, no knowledge of God. You get to the third woe, and it announces, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if it were a cart rope. And the picture here is that they're planning to sin and they're leading it along and and planning um, to enjoy their sin. And then 20, which is where I wanted to go, says, "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.'" What this tells us is that when people are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, that it has such a destructive power upon their soul that they end up completely reversing their whole concepts of right and wrong and logic and understanding things. This is the best way to explain what's been happening. We've finally seen all of the rebellion against God, all of the people who have denied God, denied truth, hated Christianity, loved sin, loved evil. It has destroyed their ability to think rationally and logically so that now they are calling good evil and evil good they think it's a wonderful thing for someone to go through a uh, take an eight-year-old through a surgery to change the sex that God assigned to them they think that's a good thing and I could go on you know what's been going on in our culture it is a mass psychosis this morning there was an excellent article by Dr. Joseph Mercola on mass psychosis and mass hysteria, which was a great explanation of exactly what we are seeing in our country. And it is because they have completely lost touch with reality. And there are you, you and I are patriots. We love this country. We love its founding. We love the vision of the founding fathers and those who came here in the 17th century and 18th century to build a city upon a hill, as they put it. We we believe in that vision that they had for freedom. They didn't, they had, it took years to accomplish much of it because uh, that was the goal. That was the object. It was, they weren't stating When Thomas Jefferson said all men are created equal, he was uh, stating what the standard and the goal is. He wasn't saying we've achieved it, but that's where we're headed. That is our value. That is our standard. That's where we're headed. And today they have rejected all of that and called it evil. And the result is that they no longer have any idea who they are, what they're doing, what life is all about, And they want to drag everybody into that deep, dark, psychotic hole with them. And the only ones that are standing against them, pointing to the light, are the Christians. Because we have the truth. And we know who the light is. And he is the one and only way. And there is no truth and there is no knowledge apart from him. And yet we are the ones who are ridiculed and castigated. We are the ones who are cursed. We are the ones who are blamed for everything. And I hate to tell you this, I don't like being a pessimist. I'm really a rather optimistic, hopeful person. But I haven't seen anything in our history in the last 120 years to indicate that there's a change in the direction the plot, if you were to take various points along the way and plot it out on a graph, there's nothing yet to indicate that it's going to change direction. And I would be amiss if I did not warn you that that there could be extremely dark days coming, and we ought to be prepared for it in every way that we can, but mostly spiritually. And this is a, a, the result of a culture that has not only left God they have abandoned ridiculed and rejected everything that God has said and this is why a day of the Lord was coming upon Israel and on many other countries so turn to Isaiah 13 Isaiah 13 Now in Isaiah chapter 13 we have the other use another use of the day of the Lord in Isaiah and it shows up down in verse 9. The day of the Lord shows up down in verse 9. Wait a minute. That's right. I didn't put a slide of this because it's too much in Isaiah. Down in verse 9, we have uh, the the picture here of this judgment that will come on Babylon. This is a judgment that comes upon Babylon. And so we look down to verse nine, or verse six rather. That's the first use. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. I'm telling you, they're not just nervous and scared that somebody might have broken in the house during the night. This is the kind of fear where your heart melts and you sweat. And you shake and you can't move. It's probably ten times worse than that. I can't describe it. Um, They will be immobilized by their fear. Pangs and sorrows will take care of them. They will be in pain as a woman at childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. Now there's another situation describing uh, various things that happen in the heavens. And I believe that there are several times in the tribulation when this takes place. The first time we know of in Revelation is in that, that sixth seal judgment near the beginning. But this seems to come near the end because this is describing the destruction. There's also another time that um, is mentioned in uh, a, a, a Joel three fourteen that we saw last time. So there are these different times when there are these cosmic disturbances in the heavens. And in verse 11 we read, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. A man more than the golden wedge of Ophir, because so many will be destroyed. so this is what we see in uh, in this passage, and in verses eleven and twelve and following down through uh, verse seventeen, we see that all of this is a prediction of Babylon's fall, and it's never occurred in history. Uh, a lot of uh, scholars will go to verse 17, and there are a lot of older dispensationalists, I think a lot of younger ones, those that have come along in the last uh, 25, 30, 40, 45 years, recognize that Babylon is going to be rebuilt, that ba- this pr- uh, prophecy against Babylon has never occurred in history, that Babylon was not defeated In this way, when you look at at Daniel chapter chapter 5, I believe it's 5 or 6, when the Medes and the Persians come in, they did it at night. They did it while the uh, king uh, Belshazzar was having a drunken feast. And in the wee hours of the morning, they had dammed up the Euphrates River that flowed through the city and they came in on the riverbed and nothing was destroyed. The The walls were not torn down. The gates were not breached. They went in in peace and everybody woke up to the fact that there was a foreign army in control of the city. So uh, various other descriptions here about its, ju- its judgment. Uh, it says it will be down in verse 19. It will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there. Well, they still do. And uh, as a matter of fact, it, it wasn't barren for many years. Babylon uh, continued to survive as a city well into the uh, early year, centuries of the, of the church age. So this is... Uh, Going to is a description of the final destruction of Babylon during the tribulation, uh, tribulation period. In Isaiah, Jeremiah 50 to 51, there is a parallel passage, and people go there, but in Jeremiah chapter 50, it predicts that the enemy that comes will come uh, from the north, and yet the Medes and the Persians came, uh, came in from the east, and so these prophecies about the future about the total destruction of Babylon have not yet taken place. So this is describing a future day of the Lord. And we even find that in verse three of chapter 14, in the uh, prelude to the description of Satan's fall, because he is the one who empowers the Antichrist, so they are looked at together. And in verse 3 of chapter 14, it shall come to pass in the day uh, the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow. So it's not the day of the Lord. I misread that when I looked down. Uh, But it comes after that. And this describes what happens after the day of the Lord. So that's what we see. Now we come to Zephaniah. Zephaniah is in that group of prophets you don't read very often. Uh, at the towards the end of your Old Testament, and Zephaniah is written about this, or about the same time as, or a little bit later actually than Isaiah. Isaiah is eighth century, and Zephaniah is written in uh, the seventh century. So Zephaniah, if I can find it. Uh, Zephaniah is uh, after Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Seventh century. Now, these are the verses that are used talking about the day of the Lord. Verse 7 of chapter 1, "...be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord uh, is at hand." For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. Verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. And verse 15 continues, That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So this is not talking about one 24-hour period, but a the time frame during which all of these judgments uh, take place. So again, it is depicting the day of the Lord as a time of darkness, a time of God's wrath, a time of judgment uh, that is brought on upon uh, the whole earth. And Just as we have seen in Obadiah and Joel and Isaiah, Zephaniah looks at this future time as a time of unique trouble and distress on the face, uh, face of the earth. So this is a time of judgment where God is bringing about his purposes for the tribulation period. In Zephaniah one sixteen and 17, a day of trump trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers, I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. So this is the judgment God brings on the whole world. And it reminds us that we what we see is that this is a period when God is going to bring mass death upon the planet. Now, there's another phrase that's used in Zephaniah chapter 2, uh, verse, verses 2 and 3 that some people include here. I think it's rather descriptive of all that we have seen. And in those two verses, we have the phrase the day of the Lord's anger. Uh, In verse 2 of Zephaniah 2, we read, Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So that is the reason these are described is for God's offer of grace uh, to his people. Jeremiah mentions this phrase one time in Jeremiah 46 verse 10. There we read for this is the day of the Lord God of hosts. It is a day of vengeance. The word that is translated for vengeance doesn't have the idea of personal of a personal vendetta that we have as part of our understanding of vengeance. It is judicial vengeance. It is bringing justice uh, to those who deserve justice. A day of vengeance that God may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. And I believe that's referring to Babylon, to the destruction of Babylon in the period of Daniel's 70th week. Then we come to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is in the 6th century, that's the 500s. Ezekiel is taken captive in 605 when Nebuchadnezzar's first uh, assault on Jerusalem, number of captives were taken back, and so he is a prophet to Israel out of the land in Babylon, the beginning of the captivity. And he has a view of the day of the Lord, that historic day of the Lord as it's happening. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem during the assault in 586 BC and witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. And so that's how you see those two uh, related to one another. In Ezekiel 13.5, we read, you have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. So in Ezekiel 13.5, we have the first reference and in Ezekiel 30, verse 3, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. So that puts it, the tribulation is in that time period of uh, bringing final judgment on uh, on uh, the Gentiles. So in this opening section in chapter 13, uh, uh, Ezekiel is uh, writing Against the false prophets and the false prophetesses, and these are the ones who had just made it up. It's amazing as I read through Jeremiah how many times Jeremiah is brought before the king or brought before uh, some official, and they say, they swear up and down, we want to hear from the Lord, we want you to tell us what the Lord has to say, and then Jeremiah tells them, and they get mad at him, and they throw him in jail. Because they don't really want to know what the lord what the Lord says so when we get to uh, chapter 13 uh, it's describing the whole previous section of chapter thirteen is describing what these false prophets and prophetesses have done and they have been preached this false preaching this false peace and so Ezekiel is going to ignore Uh, indict them because of their sin, and then he is going to uh, warn them and tell them of God's future judgment, which is described as rain, hail, and wind, and that God is going to tear down their false protection, which is uh, uh, described as the wall. And so it is in this section that he uh, first announces the day of the Lord and then when we get to chapter uh, chapter 30 that this is uh, also a reference uh, to the effect of the day of the Lord on the uh, various other nations in the Middle East specifically for Egypt. And in verse 4, following this statement, it goes on to read, "...the sword shall come upon Egypt." The great anguish shall be in Ethiopia, when the slain fall in Egypt, and as they take away their wealth. And so, what happened is that after Nebuchadnezzar uh, surrounded, destroyed, and burned Jerusalem, uh, they left for a while, and there was a group of people that were that remained that survived. And then they decided they were going to go to Egypt to protect themselves. And that is when their leader called upon Jeremiah and said, "Um, tell us what God wants us to do. And God said, and Jeremiah said, God said, don't go to Egypt, stay here. And they said, you're lying to us. And they were going to kill Jeremiah and said they took him with them and they went to Egypt. And then Nebuchadnezzar attacks Egypt in fulfillment of this particular uh, prophecy and then we're coming to the second to last one uh, tonight and that is in Zechariah uh, chapter 14 now this is an interesting one I want to point out a couple of things to you as we look at this uh, verse 1 of chapter 14 begins by announcing the day of the Lord Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is part of the campaign of Armageddon. Uh, The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. That means they are raped and abused half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So there's a remnant that survives in Jerusalem. Then we're told in verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And that is when he is going to uh, return and that comes in stages because the major the 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 believers have left. They followed what the Lord Jesus Christ said that when you see the sign of the abomination of desolation, leave and go to the hills. They have left, they're down in Basra. They are going to finally turn and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to come and deliver them as their Messiah. Christ will come, he will defeat the army that the Antichrist has uh, down in over, actually in over in J- Jordan now over in the area of Petra, and the Lord will defeat them. And Isaiah speaks of him as coming up with his robes dipped in blood, and he is leading the Israel the Israel force against the armies of the Antichrist, and he is destroying them on his way. And then he will come to Jerusalem and he will come to the Mount of Olives. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now that's usually pictured as if he's descending from heaven, and that's where he comes, but that's not where he comes. He's coming there from Edom and Basra, where he has destroyed the armies of the Antichrist, and he ascends the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, making a large valley, half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee. This is those who survived in Jerusalem are going to flee out the east gate and they are going to flee through this valley that has opened up in the Mount of Olives and they are going to flee to a place nobody knows of called Azal in verse 5. And the Lord... Then it says, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Now it says, it "It shall come to pass in that day. That's not the day of the Lord. This phrase is used in verse 4, and in that day, that is in this particular 24-hour period. The day of the Lord is a broader time period at the end of the tribulation. At the least, I think it's the whole tribulation. So in that day, which is that end point, that 24-hour period, uh, the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will come to pass at, in that day, that time, that there will be no light, the lights will diminish, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day, which day? The same one. Not the day of the Lord, but this same 24-hour period. It shall be that the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all of the earth. So the day of the Lord culminates with this particular 24-hour day. Then we have one more passage, and that's in Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, who is Elijah the prophet? There are a lot of people who think that Elijah the prophet is going to be one of the two witnesses. But God is not going to bring back Moses and Elijah or Enoch and Elijah to be witnesses in a mortal body where they can be killed because the two witnesses are killed. They're going to be executed and their bodies put on display. God's not going to take prophets that have already died and have their uh, immaterial bodies, uh, their intermediate bodies, and then bring them back uh, to the earth. So we have this idea that it is those who come in the spirit of Elijah. And I believe that relates to probably God, the Holy Spirit, who... Uh, gave Elijah his prophetic gifts uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus said to his disciples, "If you are willing to receive it, he that is John the Baptist is Elijah, who is to come." Uh, John the Baptist was his was the forerunner. John the Baptist uh, came dressed in ca- uh, camel hair. Tunic with a belt and living out in the, uh, living rough out in the desert. And he came in the power of Elijah. He was said to have been the great, greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And so he would have been that forerunner, Jesus says in um, Matthew 17:10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, the scribes got it right. They got it from Malachi. Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Now, that seems rather mysterious. But then Jesus says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they do not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. So he identifies John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Elijah. So either A, Elijah has come and that precedes the day of the Lord, or the two witnesses who come perhaps will be in the spirit of Elijah and the spirit of Moses. And so they will function, and it doesn't say they conclude their ministry. It says they will arrive on the scene. And so they will be saved after the rapture, probably in that interim period before the tribulation begins. And so they are on the scene, and they are saved, and have arrived before the day of the Lord occurs, if that's all of the uh, seven years of the tribulation. So what we have done here is to look at the meaning of this phrase when the day of the Lord is used, and it can refer to a historic or past time judgment, something that already was fulfilled, or it can refer to this in-time judgment. Second, we've seen that it always appears to speak of judgment, not blessing, speaks of darkness and not light. Third. All past days of the Lord foreshadow the future in time day of the Lord and none of the past days of the Lord included any any blessing and forth that the future day of the Lord will be preceded by several different events which we have have looked at and we'll look at those again when we get into some New Testament passages so that is gives us an understanding of what the New Testament passage is that specifically use the phrase Day of the Lord. Now, the problem is that you and I and others have all been taught by many very excellent, wonderful students of the Bible that the Day of the Lord includes a millennial kingdom. They don't get it from these passages that specifically use the Day of the Lord. How do they get that idea? And so I'm going to come back next week and we'll talk about some of those passages they go to and to to show that it includes the millennium and why that's probably not accurate. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to come to understand your word. Thank you for all those great Bible scholars who went before us building, developing, teaching that enable us to stand on their works and to Uh, understand your word with perhaps a little more clarity. Father, again, we pray for our nation. We pray that you would raise up leaders who can articulate what is going on and why it is going on. We pray that you would bring uh, a judgment upon those pulpits in this nation that have completely compromised with the world and continue to pervert the very ministry that you gave them. And, Father, we pray that uh, if none of that happens, and it is your will for us to fall as empires have fallen in the past, that we would be fortified in our soul to handle the situation, to be a light to the world around us, and to not cave in to any kind of fear or anxiety or worry or... Uh, be panicky or any of the other things that we may just relax and trust in you, knowing that your plan is perfect and that we can carry out our mission with your protection. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.